adults, Genesis 1 and 1. Praise the Lord. Well, are you learning anything? Brother Dice used to teach us, he said, if you give people information, that will give them inspiration. A lot of preachers preach, they tell stories and, and things like that. I guess that's okay from time to time, put a story in. But he wasn't much for stories. He was more about the Word of God than stories. And, uh, you know, inspiration comes from information. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give you information about God's Word and God. So anyway, this morning, we're going to start the series on systematic theology. We've explained to you uh, various aspects of theology, doctrine, the, um, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of Revelation. We gave you an introduction to doctrine, and now we're going to actually get into systematic theology. And the doctrine we're going to cover is the doctrine of God. Say with me, the doctrine of God. Praise the Lord. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing, God, to be upon the reading of your holy word. We thank you for your inspiration, Lord, that you give us. We glorify you and honor you in everything that we do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The doctrine of God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible does not begin with an explanation as to where God came from because God has always existed. Amen? In fact, for us to try to ask that question, you know, where did God come from, really is not something that I don't think is appropriate. To be honest with you, it'd be like somebody taking axe and they go in the forest and begin to chop a tree down and the axe asked the question to the person using it, what are you doing with me? You know, questioning. The axe doesn't have a right to question man because man's higher than the axe is. So for us to sit around and speculate as to where God came from, so on and so forth, is a waste of time. The Bible doesn't even get into that. It doesn't explain where God came from. We just know that God has always existed. There has never been a time when God didn't exist. Amen. Now, you start getting into that, you start thinking about where did God come from? How long has God been around? Who created God? Well, nobody created God. If you have somebody creating God, that means that he's greater than God, and where did he come from? Right? So, I mean, we don't even need to get into that, where God came from, you know, all of that stuff. You're just wasting your time. You'll, you'll lose your mind sitting around thinking about that trying to figure that out because you can't God has always been there's never been a time when God didn't exist so the scripture is very clear that God it just starts out with God in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth so it just begins with God it doesn't try to explain where God came from all of that you're wasting your time the Bible doesn't address it you don't need to address it you just have to embrace it by faith amen that God is God's and it is a fact, because the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
So it is a fact that God exists, right? So get away from asking the questions, where did God come from? All right, let's go to the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter. In verse 6, Hebrews 11 and verse 6, New Testament. Praise the Lord. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. And that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Alright, so when you come to God, then you have to believe by faith that He is. How many of y'all believe God is? That God exists. All right? So he that cometh to God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. All right? So we come to him by faith, correct? Look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God is invisible. Nobody has ever seen God at any time. Now, they've seen the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ. God is manifested in Christ Jesus in the flesh. But nobody has ever seen the Spirit of God. Amen? Because the Spirit of God is everywhere. He's invisible. He's omnipresent. That means He's everywhere. So nobody has ever seen the Spirit of God. We have manifestations of God's presence. Like Jesus Christ, as God come in the flesh. We have the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, a visible manifestation of God. But you have never seen the Spirit of God. You have seen the Shekinah glory cloud, right? The Scripture talks about the Shekinah glory cloud, visible manifestation of God, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. But you didn't see the Spirit of God. You saw a manifestation of God. Pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. That was a manifestation of God. Nobody has ever seen God. God is invisible. So we look at it, Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, because God is invisible. You cannot see the Spirit of God. The only God you're ever going to see is Jesus Christ. You understand that? So this idea when people get to heaven, you got Jesus and the Father and the, you know and the Holy Ghost up there. No, the Father is invisible, the invisible Spirit of God that was in Jesus Christ. So the only God you're going to see is Jesus Christ. You're not going to see the invisible eternal spirit of God. Nobody has ever seen God in his spirit. You understand that? In the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, when it's personified in Jesus. Bible says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the angels in the Old Testament, before God became a man, saw the Word of God. The Word of God was the visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament. So that when the angels came before God on the throne, God was on the throne, His Spirit was everywhere, but they saw a manifestation of God in some form, and that manifestation of the Spirit of God is in some form was called the Word of God. Does that make sense? But no angel, no man has ever seen the Spirit of God at all. It has to be a manifestation of God, whether it be the Word of God or the kind of glory cloud 
or the angel of the Lord. Now it's God come in flesh in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? Okay? So we know that God exists. That's a fact. The Bible doesn't try to explain where he came from, correct? We know that if we're going to come to him, we must believe that he is and that he's a reward of them that diligently seek him. And then thirdly, faith is the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So because God is invisible, the only way that he can be substantiated to you and I is that we have faith. And we put our faith in God, that makes God substantiated to us. Does that make sense? By faith. Not because I've seen God, but by faith. Now, I've felt him, but I've never seen him. So God becomes real to you by faith not by sight, because he is the invisible God. The Bible starts with God, amen, ends with God, doesn't try to explain where it came from. It is just a fact that God exists, amen, and I must believe that he is, and I have to embrace him by faith. He becomes real to me, not by sight, because he's invisible, but because of faith, amen. If you're waiting to see something, to see God before you believe, you're going to miss it. He becomes substantiated to you by faith. Praise the Lord. Now, but we can go through and we can look at some proofs for his existence, okay? Now, I know that God exists. How many of y'all believe that? I embrace that by faith. I believe that he is. He's invisible. And so what makes him real to me or substantiates him to me is that I have faith. But there are proofs of his existence. Number one, the cosmos. Okay? Say with me, cosmos. The word cosmos simply means the world. Amen? Okay. Now, the world, the cosmos, tells me that there is a God in this way. There is what is known as cause and effect. Now, look around here. Do you see anything here? When you walk out of the doors of this church and you look out up in the sky, do you see anything there? Is there anything? Oh, this is just all in my imagination. Right? There's a philosophy that says this isn't real. Do I have any people like that here today? I was in a church one time. I met with a, with a man after church, and he looked at me, and he said, everything here, there's nothing real. It's all our imagination. I said, really? He said, yeah, nothing's, nothing, nothing's real. This is all our imagination. Do I have anybody like that here in the church this morning? That everything here is just your imagination that it's really not real. That's a philosophy, okay? All right. Now, do we agree today that this is real? That I'm standing on a piece of wood up here? You're sitting on a piece of wood? How many of y'all believe there's ground underneath you? Sky above you? Well, praise the Lord, at least he got you that far. All right, so where did everything come from? This creation, the cosmos, the world. Where did it come from? The sky, the land. Well, the world, the cosmos, is what is known as the effect. But who caused it? All right, so the cosmos proves that there's a God. Because we have an effect. If you have an effect, the world... That means something caused the effect. That's known as the law of cause and effect. So there has to be somebody that caused the cosmos to come into existence. It didn't just happen, right? Okay. 
So if we have the world, if we have the cosmos, if we have the effect, there's a law that tells me there has to be a cause behind that. And that cause behind the creation of the world or the cosmos is God. So the effect is creation. The cause of the effect is God himself. So that proves that God exists. Say praise the Lord. Now if you look at Hebrews 11 again. In verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God spoke this world into existence with his word. So he is the cause behind the fact. Cosmos is a proof that God exists. Okay? If you don't believe that God exists, where did everything come from? Somebody had to cause this. Something or someone had to cause this to happen. You can't just have something here without something or someone making it happen. All right? How many of y'all believe that? Okay, so we're doing real good. Number two, proof that God exists. Big old word, T-E-L-E, teleological, tele, T-E-L-E, illogical, means design and purpose and order in the universe. When you look at the universe, you're going to see things that are, there's order in the universe, that there is design in the universe. Look at a snowflake, look at the waves coming in into the ocean, you know, the same number of waves all the time coming in. Look at a watermelon, the designs on the watermelon, the stripes on the watermelon. Go out there and count the stripes on a watermelon. Go and count the stripes of another watermelon beside it. It's going to have the same amount of stripes. There is design. There is order in the universe. Right? Do you believe that? So the teleological proof is that there is order and design in the universe. Where did that order and design come from? Somebody put it here. It didn't just happen. If there's, if there's no God, right? If everything just happened, there wouldn't be any order. There would be just chaos, right? But God put design and put order in this universe. In fact, his name Elohim, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God in Genesis 1-1 is from the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim means that he is a God of order, a God of power. Okay? So Elohim, the God of power and the God of order, is the one that brought this about. So when you look at the world, you see design and you see order. That proves that there is a God. Okay? Anthropological. Say with me, anthropological. What does that mean? I like these big words. I do. I like these big words that make me sound smart. It means that there, you, you're anthropos. You're a man, right? Mankind, not all of you are men, but you are mankind. Okay, y'all with me? Did I put you to sleep yet? Where did you come from? Does anybody know? Well, when I look at you, it proves that, you, that there's a God. Because you came from somewhere. You mean you didn't come from any primordial soup or you didn't, you know what I'm saying? 
You came from somewhere. So you were created in the image of God. So when I look at you, you prove to me that there is a God. Amen? It's called anthropological. Man. Man was created in the image of God. Praise the Lord. And it's not that I, I put my stamp of approval on everything, but I had an opportunity to wa watch the opening ceremonies of the Olympics just the other night, on Friday night, a little bit of that. And I was blown away by the technology. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but the technology that was involved in making all of those things that happened in that opening ceremony of the Winter Olympic, Olympics was amazing to me. And I looked at my wife and I said, that proves that there's a God. Because man has creative ability. Have you ever seen an animal get, uh, like a monkey? How many of you have ever seen your dog in your backyard building a table? Getting his saw out, starting his saw up, cutting the tree down, shaving the wood, building the table. Have y'all ever seen your dog doing that? I've seen some of y'all do that. Where did you get that ability? First of all, where did you get that creative mind? To design something, to put order in something, then to create something. Because you were created in the image of God. The fact that you can create something, develop something, build it like you do, praise God, is proof that there is a creator. Because you are a creator. People say you came from an animal? Well, when have you ever seen an ape build anything? Build a house. When it, have you ever seen the ape build a car? Design a car? Write any blueprints up? Well, you came from an ape? Well, why can't an ape? Why can't a monkey draw out blueprints, build a car, build a house? If you came from an ape, it's impossible that you came from an ape. You, came, you were created by a creator, and you were created in his image, which means you have created a creative ability just like him. Different. You are proof that God exists. Every time you create something, every time you design something, every time you put order in something, you are declaring that there's a God. Does that make sense? If it does, say praise the Lord. Now, if, I, if you ever see your monkey out there drawing blueprints up, reading books, you know, building stuff, come and talk to me. Because it's going to just blow this, this thing that I'm teaching this morning. It, is, it won't be true anymore. You won't see it, though, so I don't have anything to worry about. You are created in the image of God in the sense that you have creative ability. You have the ability to communicate. God is a talking God. When's the last time you ever saw your dog talk? I know some of you think they do. Some of you have dog language and cat language, and you start trying to communicate with them, you know, and you make dog sounds and kitty sounds, and, and you actually think that the dog is talking to you. Well, I got news for you. Your dog's not talking to you. Your kitty's not talking to you. Praise the Lord. And if you if you hear your bird talking to you, it's just mimicking you. It's really not talking to you. It's just imitating your words. Right? You were created in the image of God. You are a, a creature that creates. You are a person, a creature that can communicate. You can talk. You can speak. Animals don't do that. It proves that there's a God. Amen? Say praise the Lord. All right, ontological, ontological. What is that? What is ontological? 
It means intuition. Man's intuition <laughs> proves that there's a God. Intuition is knowledge, praise God, that has come to man without reason. It's something you were born with. Now, remember we talked about reason is a ability to gain truth or to, to gain a knowledge of truth. Reason gives you the ability to have a knowledge of truth. It gives you the ability to judge, and it gives you the ability to organize. That's what reason is. But intuition is not reason. Intuition is something that you were born with. It's a knowledge that you have that is not based on reason. When you and I were born, God put something in us called intuition, a knowledge inside of us that tells us there's a God. And that intuition in me that's not based on even reason, it's the knowledge that God put in me declares that there's a God. Where did that intuition come from if there's no God? You look at man across the whole world. I've been over in Taiwan. I've been to China. I've seen people worshiping images. They worship Buddha, so on and so forth. And, and all over the world, man worships. May not be the one true God of the Bible, but man worships. Why do they worship? Why do they have a desire to worship something? Okay, It can be an idol if it's not the one true God of the Bible. But they're worshiping something all over the world. Why are they worshiping something all over the world? Because inside of them, they were born with intuition. A knowledge that comes to them without reason. Not based on reason. And that was something they were born with. God put it in every person that there is a God. And you may not be worshiping that one true God of the Bible that we worship but because you worship is proof that there is a God because inside of you, you, you know, I need to worship something. I need to bow down to something. You may be worshiping the wrong thing, but intuition tells you there is a God and I need to worship Him. Amen? Tribes in Africa that never even heard about there being a God. Nobody's ever even preached to them about there being a God. They've worshipped idols forever and ever. I mean, from the time they man was created, man has worshipped idols. Amen? Because inside intuition, ontologically, man knows that there is a God. He was born with that knowledge that there's a God. The problem is, is that man's worshipping oftentimes the wrong God. And that's where we come in as a church We've got to go out and evangelize the world and tell man who has that intuition in him that there is a God. We've got to tell him what his name is and who he is. And that's Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. So praise the Lord. Amen. How many of you know you need to worship something? Okay. Where did it come from? Say with me, ontological. Ontological. Intuition. Praise the Lord. Knowledge without reason. Something you were born with. Hallelujah. How many of y'all have an intuition? You just know certain things. It wasn't because you accumulated facts and read the books or anything. You just know something inside. That's called intuition. The knowledge you were born with. Okay, say praise the Lord. 
I'm going to love God. Next reason, proof that God exists, is the moral reason. Okay, the fact that you have the ability to know wrong from right, the fact that you know that there's a difference between wrong and right, and the fact that you know you have a responsibility to do what's right and to avoid what's wrong. Where did that come from? It's called the conscience. Where did you get that conscience that enables you to know that there's a difference between right and wrong and that you're responsible to do right and, and to avoid the wrong? Where did you get that? Conscience. Conscience means to know. It's to know oneself. Where'd you get that? God gave you a conscience. He gave me a conscience. I was born with a conscience. Now, I can't always go by that conscience because my conscience has been defiled by my fallenness. Only when God fills you with the Holy Ghost, only when you get born again, is your conscience reliable at all. If you're not a born-again believer, your conscience is not a reliable thing. I mean, it's not complete. But the thing, the fact that every person, unless they're just seared completely, okay, and they've given themselves totally to corruption and totally to sin, unless they're that kind of a person, everybody's got a conscience. And that proves that there is a God. The moral aspect, the moral quality of man tells you that there's a God. That God is moral. That there's right and wrong. It tells you that there is a God, number one, and this God is a God of judgment. He judges between right and wrong. He put that conscience in you. Praise the Lord. So the fact that you've got a conscience and I've got a conscience is proof that there is God. You didn't get it from your Uncle Ape. You didn't get it from the monkey. No. Praise God. You ever seen your, like I have, I used to have a, a Dotson running around in my backyard, and I, I don't like Dotson anymore. I know Sister Son, she loves him, she adores him, she has pictures all over the walls. And, but I don't like Dotsons anymore. They're just as mean as some of you. <laughs> little snapping dogs, always causing problems, tearing up everything. Think they're giants when they're little Kiwis. And my little Dotson one day just got a hold of a, a little innocent squirrel in my backyard and just shredded that little squirrel. You know, and I liked squirrels. And I looked at my dog and I said, I looked at her and I said, Man, why did you do that? And she didn't talk bad. She just looked up at me because she's a dog. She doesn't know. You know, it wasn't so she could have food, she just wanted to kill something and tear it to pieces. She, that, the reason is you don't have any conscience. Dogs do what dogs do. They, they go by instinct. They see that animal and they take it and shred it to pieces and leave it laying on the ground. They don't have a conscience. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. You can train them, you understand, to do certain things, but that doesn't mean that they know right from wrong. You just train them. They've got instinct. Amen. Are you glad you got somebody sitting next to you that has a conscience? Well, first of all, does everybody here have a conscience? Right? Well, you have to be very careful, though, if you go by your conscience because you're going to say, well, I, I, I think this, I feel this. Well, as a believer, you've got to go beyond what you think and what you feel. You've got to 
You've got to base what you do, what you say, in the Word of God. Okay? But the fact, how many of y'all have a conscience? Okay, we want to find out here. If you don't have a conscience, it means you're an animal. Okay, at least a few of you have got a conscience. We thank the Lord for that. Proof that God exists. Because man knows right from wrong, and he knows not just right from wrong, but he knows he's got a responsibility to do what's right. If he does something wrong, what happens? Guilt feelings come. Where do those guilt feelings come? You know you did wrong. And some of you are sitting in church right here this morning. And because you've got a conscience and you've got the Holy Ghost, God is speaking to your conscience telling you know you did wrong. And you've got a responsibility to make it right. And you're full of guilt this morning because you know you messed up and you know that you have a responsibility to make it right, and until you make it right, you're going to walk around full of guilt. So, so I don't want guilt. You go to a psychologist, they try to tell you to don't feel guilty, get rid of your guilty feelings. Are you kidding me? Get rid of my guilty feelings? The only way that I can do that is put it under the blood. The only way that I can do that is my responsibility to go and make it right. I just don't just discount my guilty feelings as something that's bad. Guilt is good. Guilty feelings are good because that brings you to a place where you can say to God, God, I was wrong. I missed it. And I'm responsible, God, for that. I'm going to go make it right, God. Stop listening to psychologists and philosophers that tell you guilt is bad. Guilt is good. You've done something wrong and you feel guilty. You need to thank God for that because that's proof that you're bigger than an animal and it proves that God exists. I thank God when if I do something wrong or say something, you know, I shouldn't. I start feeling guilty. Guilt is a good thing. It brings you to God. So how many this morning... Your conscience is eating you. Don't lift your hands. Your conscience is bothering you so bad. Why? You feel so guilty because you did wrong. You know you did wrong. But it's not just the knowledge that you did something wrong. It's something responsible to go make it right. Okay, praise the Lord. That's God's goodness to us. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for guilty feelings? Really? You don't want guilty feelings? Do you want feelings at all? Are you thankful that when you go and put your hand in a hot, on a hot stove that your hand says, pull back? I am. I'm glad I can't just go put my hand in the fire and just leave it there and watch it burn without any feeling. I'm glad if I touch a hot fire that I can respond, I can react to that. It, it protects me. Amen? And guilty feeling the same way it comes out of your conscience. That is proof that God exists. And until you get it right, you know it. You've got a responsibility to get it right. Until you do, your conscience is going to eat you alive. Thank God it does. I don't hear anybody screaming or shouting or running anymore. Some of you have a real bad conscience this morning. Something's eating at you. You know it. We'll make it right. First of all, make it right with God. Put it under the blood. Ask God to forgive you for it. If you've done something wrong, done somebody wrong, go and make it right with them. Correct yourself. 
corrects herself. And thank God for that guilty feeling. Well, thank God for the two or three that's praising the Lord this morning. Yeah, you just see people today, they're looking for answers. They go to psychiatrists. You know, they got all kinds of mental problems and everything else, you know, in their life. And they go to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist says, it's all due to your guilt, your guilty feelings. You just need to do away with your guilty feelings, get rid of them, and you'll be doing really good. No, your guilty feelings is driving you in the presence of God. Your guilty feeling is saying, there is a God. I know right from wrong. I have a responsibility to do what's right. i got to make it right. Amen. And until I do, my conscience is going to make me feel guilty. Amen. Does that make sense? So I saved you a lot of money. You don't have to go to a psychologist. You don't have to go to a psychiatrist to find out what's wrong with you. I've already told you what's wrong with you. You're full of guilt because your conscience, you violated your conscience, put it under the blood, get it right. And you don't have to spend your money on a psychologist. Say praise the Lord. All right, biological. Biological reason that there's proof that there is God. Almost sounds like we're in a creation science seminar, doesn't it? I'm not Ken Ham. Praise the Lord. But it almost feels that way, doesn't it? Well, you need to know this. You don't think you do. You sit there and look at me. Wait. Come tonight and I'll preach the word of God to you. But you need to have the doctrine of God today. You need to understand these things. It's important for you to understand these things. Biological. See, we start using big words. Everybody shuts their minds off. But the biological proof that there is a God. Bios. Life. Amen. Do you know that life, it is impossible. It's a scientific fact that life cannot come out of non-life. Life cannot, it is impossible for life to come out of matter alone. For there to be life, it had to come out of life. Did you hear what I said? Life did not come out of matter. It didn't just happen. Life scientifically it's a fact. Life has to come out of life. And I'm looking at you, and you're life. You have life. Where'd you come from? God. Let's go to John 1. I'll show you something. If you're alive today, you came from life. That proves that there's someone that was alive before you, that you came out of. He is the source of your life. And if he is the source of your life, that means he had to be alive. John 1, go there. Praise the Lord. Verse, verse 3, John 1, 3. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The creators of the heaven and the earth, the Bible says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So in God was life. And that 
life that was in God was the life of me or the life of me. And that's where we got our life from, was from God. The Bible says in him was life. So it is impossible for there to be life without life. And because you're alive today, prove that God is alive. Amen? Okay. Historical fact. God is in control of history. Go to Revelation 17. History proves that God exists. He covered this already briefly. That the prophets predicted before it happened the rise and fall of kingdoms and powers. Hundreds of years sometimes before these powers ever even came into existence, the prophets predicted they would, right? The Bible talks about it in the book of Daniel. We have Babylon. It's prophesied the Medo-Persians would overthrow them. Amen. Y'all believe that? In Daniel chapter 5, it happened. The Medes and the Persians over, overthrew Babylon. Now watch this. The soldiers just happened to leave the gates of the city of Babylon open. And the soldiers, the Medo-Persian soldiers, they diverted the river Euphrates, walked underneath the, the walls of the city, and the gates were open to allow the Medo-Persian soldiers to go in and conquer Babylon. Who was in control of the gates being left open? God was behind it. It was prophesied. Anyway, so the events of history. Uh, Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then we have the prophecy that Greece would follow them and follow them the Roman Empire, and then following that we have the end time uh, one world government system, of, system that's prophesied by Daniel. So, God is behind, he's in control of the rise of world powers. Historically, uh, history proves that God exists. Revelation 17, 17. Amen. We see mystery Babylon is destroyed by God. But how is how's Mystery Babylon destroyed? We've studied Mystery Babylon with you before. How is Mystery Babylon destroyed? God puts it in the hearts, in the heart of the Antichrist and his kingdom to destroy her. Revelation 17, 17. You with me? Okay, let's back up a little bit so you'll see where we're really at. 16, uh, 17, 16. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So the world government system under the Antichrist, amen, is going to destroy mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. Okay? Now it I'm not going to try to interpret the passage or anything too heavily this morning, but if that mystery Babylon, and I believe it is, it takes you back to Genesis. Mystery Babylon is a false religious system that was started under Nimrod and Semiramis, his wife. And we see this false system of religion depicted as a woman because in the Bible, a woman depicts a church system. We're not going to get too heavy here with you. So what I see in the passage is because we have mystery Babylon here, takes you back to ancient Babylon, a false religious system that was set up at that time and spread throughout the world. We find out in the last days that the world government system is going to destroy one world religion. Okay? 
Now, who is behind the destruction of this woman called Mystery Babylon that is destroyed by the ten horns and the Antichrist? Who's behind it? Who's behind this uh, world government burning her with fire? Burning, now listen to me carefully, burning up the Vatican, setting her on fire. Rome is going to, the Vatican is going to be set on fire in the future. Okay? Who is behind doing that? What's causing it? Is it just happening because this world government system got together and said, hey, we need to, we need to destroy this uh, false church. And it's more than the Vatican, okay? I'm not, God help me, I just have a tendency to want to go and preach these things. Mystery Babylon means it's not literal Babylon. There's another aspect of it. Could be the United States involved with it as well. But anyway, my point is, verse 17, in one hour, in 18, one hour, another Babylon will be destroyed. But 17, 17, for God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, who has that kind of power over the kings of the earth? The Vatican does. The president bows down to the Pope. If the Pope comes to America, he gets heat. You may not see it publicly, but he will get down. He'll kiss the hand of the Pope because the Pope has more power than the President of the United States. They, they, the Vatican rules over the kings of men. You understand? But we see in the end time of the book of Revelation this one world government system headed up by the Antichrist is going to destroy this city. You realize that the Vatican has its own zip code? It's called the Holy See. It's the Holy City. Amen. It is a city. It has its own zip code. And the one world government system is going to destroy that false religious system. Right? The Vatican, the city of Rome, and it is who that put it in their heart? Verse 17. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill His will. So history proves that there's a God. That, and that He's in control of the events of history. The rise and the fall of powers, kingdoms. He's in control. He's involved in the events. He's involved in what those kings are doing. Amen. And it's all going to be to fulfill his will, his will. Praise God. History proves that there's a God. Okay? So that's historical proof. Now, then there's the Christi, Christi, Christological proof. You with me? Christolog, Christological proof is Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ proves there, there's a God. Everything he did, first of all, let's start with who he was. Everything that he was, everything that he did, everything that he said proves that there is a God. And when I have time, it won't be tonight because the Lord's leading me to preach a different direction. I'm going to preach to you. I, how many of y'all have found the passage that proves that Jesus was a monotheistic religion? Y'all look confused because you know that Jesus is God. When I say to you, when I said to you a while back, find the passage of Scripture 
that proves that Jesus was a monotheistic believer, that he believed in one God. But that doesn't deny his deity, it confirms his humanity. As a man, Jesus believed in monotheism, one God. He wasn't a Trinitarian. Jesus Christ was a monotheistic believer. And I got Bible to prove it. Amen? And I, I've already got it. I've got a message. I'm ready to preach it to you, but it won't be denied, okay? I'm going to prove to you that Jesus was a monotheistic believer, one God believer. He did not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus himself. So if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, <laughs> Jesus don't believe that. And I'll prove it by the Bible in the New Testament. Jesus said something that declares he was monotheistic. Amen? Does anybody know that passage of Scripture? What does it say? That proves his deity, brother boss. Now, how can David call him Lord? You know, no, that proves his deity, but that's not the monotheistic passage that I'm talking about. Okay, we'll get into that, though, okay? Praise the Lord. Keep searching, but that's true. It does prove the deity of Jesus. But everything that Jesus, everything he was, everything he said, and everything that Jesus Christ did is proof that God exists. Somebody will ask you, well, does God exist? Give me proof. Jesus Christ. It's a historical known fact that there was a man named Jesus. It's a historical fact his what he said, what he preached, what he did, who he was, that he rose from the dead. It's a historical fact that has not been able to be disproved by any other fact in history. Historical fact, Jesus. Of everything. How do you know that God exists? If you don't know anything else I've shared with you, which you should know, when somebody asks you, how do you know God exists? Jesus Christ. Everything he was, everything he said, and everything he did proves that there is a God. Amen? Say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I stand on solid ground. And if God didn't give us all these proofs that I've gone through this morning, praise God, he didn't give them to me, I still walk by faith that there is a God. But he, there's proof that, there, that he exists. Okay, then we have uh, proof, bibliologically. Bibliological proof, and that is the proof of the Bible. And I, I spent two weeks with you, two Sunday mornings, on teaching you the doctrine of the Scriptures. Amen? And we just, the last part of that teaching was the numeric Bible. Now, in Matthew 1, 1 through 11, the chronology of Jesus Christ, the, what is that? Not the chronology. Genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, 1 through 11, there were 13 different things that were divisible by seven. And the possibility that happened is one in 14 billion. That you could find a numeric structure in those 11 verses with 13 different, Amen. References to things that are divisible by seven. One in 14 billion. And that was just one thing. This Bible that you have in your hands this morning, the one that I'm preaching to you about this morning, is proof that there is a God. Amen? And then finally, I appreciate your patience this morning, but finally, the final proof 
Amen? Is congruity. Congruity. Congruity proves that there's a God. And that simply means that all the ones I've just talked to you about are in agreement. None of the ones... Okay, let's go through it again. Cosmos, the world. Teleological, design. Anthropological, man. Ontological, man's intuition, right? The morality of man. Biological, life. From life. Historical. Christological. Bibli... Bibli... Bibliological, uh, uh, the Bible, congruity. All of those before are in agreement. There is no contradiction in any of them. They're all in harmony. Praise God. They're not. They're not at odds with each other. There's no contradictions in any of them. That proves that there is. We take one subject that man, you know, wants to promote. That man wants to promote. Okay. And how many debates are you going to have and disagreements you're going to have about that? Right? All of these things, all these different fields, all of these proofs that God exists are all in agreement. Amen. It's all congruity. All right? Say praise the Lord. So God is, it's a fact, but we have proof of his existence. Now, let me give you some non-Christian views about the doctrine of God. Non-Christian views. Speaking on the doctrine of God. The number one first one is the theistic view. You with me? Theistic simply means this. There is a God or gods. Now, that's a non-Christian view. Okay? It's a philosophy. You hearing what I'm saying to you? Because it can be there are different theistic views. Like pantheism, Correct? Well, pantheism. We'll get into that in just a moment. But what I'm teaching this, first of all, is these are things that are coming from the minds of men. It's man's effort to try to explain God. Okay? I'm not talking about the one true God of the Bible, the biblical truth, the big biblical realities. But I'm talking about man's own mind trying to explain the existence of God. And this view is called theistic view. That there is a God or gods. Alright. The first one is known as pantheistic. Now pan means what? Pan? That's good. You're thinking that's good. You pan something going around. Alright. Pan means all. Pan means all. Theos, God. So pantheism is a theistic view of, of God. Uh, it's man's attempt to explain the existence of God, but it's false. Okay, Pantheistic is that God is in all. He's in everything. Pantheism teaches that nature is God. That nature is God and that God is in everything in nature and everything in nature is a part of God. For example, the trees are a part of God. All right? That God's in the tree and the tree's a part of God because nature is God. That God's in birds. That 
God's in animals. He's in, okay? All. God is in all things. Wow. That's called pantheism. Well, the, the theist, this theistic view is, okay, yeah, we believe that there's a God or gods, but we're going to call it pantheism because we believe that God is in everything. So that's why you see some people, you know, hugging trees. And we used to call them tree huggers because that's what they are. Tree of pantheist, you know, witchcraft is heavy in this. Listen to me carefully. A, a witch will tell you they don't believe in the devil. Many of them. Now, there are some that may believe in the devil. They may hold to that tradition that there is a devil and they believe in the devil. But a witch is not primarily involved in the worship of the devil as Satanists is. Satanists worship the devil. Witches worship nature. They want to get in touch with nature because God is in nature. He's in the mountain. He's in the hill. He's in the, the spring of water that's flowing in front of your house or behind your house. This is all God. All right. Witches are nature worshipers. They're pantheists. Okay. You, there may be a witch. You say, you're a Satanist. No. She said, I'm not a Satanist. Yeah, you are. You're a devil worshiper if you're a witch. They'll look at you and they'll say, that is inaccurate. We worship nature. Am I here today? We worship rocks and trees and, and water and lakes. That's a pantheist. Now, you go up into the beautiful places. We look at the beautiful places like Colorado. Let's say, this is God's country. This is what we say. Because we believe that God created these beautiful things. But you go over to Sedona, Arizona, and I've been over to Sedona, Arizona, and you talk about, you, you get, I mean, it's really pretty. Really strange, man. I mean, you, you got some really, you got some nature worshipers over there. I mean, they sell crystals and rocks and everything else. And, and Sedona, Arizona is a beautiful place. I mean, red, you know, everywhere. Just beautiful place. Deep in there. And, uh, we walked into the store and this lady was selling all kinds of stuff, crystals, you know. And, and she looked at Victoria and little Victoria was a little girl and she said, she has got a powerful spirit. A strong spirit. Amen to that. <laughs> I was at my mom's house yesterday and I walked out the door and she had Victoria when she was a little baby right there on the door, you know. And those eyes... I said, look at her. She looked like she was ready to conquer the world right then. You know? And so this woman, she said, got a strong spirit. Well, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time, but I walked out there rebuking that, you know, from her. It's probably true, but I didn't want it coming from her because I felt like she was involved in witchcraft. Selling all kinds of stuff. Well, people, a lot of times in, in beautiful places like Colorado or Sedona, Arizona, they get into nature worship because they see the beauty around them. But the mistake is they start saying God is in all of these things. That all of these things are part of God and that nature is God. That's pantheism. It's a theistic view of God, but it's man's, man's mind trying to explain the existence of God. It's false. How many of y'all believe that? Amen? Are y'all awake? How many of y'all 
many of y'all been around with rich before? Been around rich before? Tell me what I'm talking about. They believe God's in rocks, crystals, windmill. Okay. Well, these people who believe that God is in everything or God is in all, amen, miss the God who created all. Because He created all these things. He created nature, the natural world, the physical world. He created all these things. But if you believe that God is in everything and that nature is God, then you miss the one who made it. Either he's going to be in everything, he's going to be uh, God all in everything, or he's going to be the one who made everything. And I choose to believe that he's the one that made all, not that he's in all. So you start talking to a witch and say, she's in, yeah, God's in that tree over there. No, he's not in that tree. He made the tree. These things just come out of the, the foul, corrupted mind of men, the reasoning, billion man. Now, next one. Say with me, polytheism. Well, what is polytheism? Poly means many gods. Okay? Poly, many gods. Again, it's a theistic view that there is a God or gods. Alright, so out of the mind of man, they start worshiping many gods. When you look at the ancient religions of like Babylon, you look at the worship of the Greeks, you look at the worship of the Romans, praise God. You look at the worship of even people today. The worship of those ancient cultures and even today is the worship of polytheism. The worship of many gods. Okay, it's sort of like pantheism. Okay, in fact it is in a sense. But polytheism, they worship the sun, they worship the moon, they worship the stars, amen? They worship birds, they worship beasts of the field. All right. Polytheism was the religion of ancient cultures. You believe that? Okay. Now, what does the Bible say about this? Well, it denies it. Correct? What it says, if you worship the sun, the moon, the stars, if you worship the birds of the air, if you worship things like that, then you are an idol worshiper or a pagan. You ever hear the term use pagan? They're a pagan. Okay? It's a pagan practice. Pagan practice, practices are practiced by pagans. They eat strange food. I'm just messing with you. Some of y'all eat some really strange food, and I, and I say, y'all eating pagan food. Amen? Some of y'all like, don't, don't even lift your hand. Some of you eat pagan food. And if you eat pagan food, I'm not going to say you're a pagan. But anyway, a pagan is somebody who worships idols. And pagan practices 
Paganism is a religion of idolatry that worships many gods. And that idolatry, that religion, has practices connected to it. It has connected to it holidays that are observed by even our country. Do you realize today that Valentine's Day is a pagan holiday? Has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, has nothing to do with God whatsoever. It is a pagan holiday with pagan roots. It was practiced by pagans. Halloween's a pagan holiday. Christmas is a pagan holiday. Has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They just put his name on it. The practices of the tree, the practices of the mistletoe, the practice, you understand? All these practices, these are pagan. And what the church did, the Roman Catholic Church, in many ways, uh, many aspects, they just took the name of Jesus and put it on a pagan practice or a pagan holiday. Had nothing to do with him at all. He's connected with the Feast of the Lord. He fulfills the Feast of the Lord. He is not involved with Valentine's Day. He's not involved with Halloween. Because those practices are pagan. A part of pagan religious celebrations and ceremonies. Now, what does God say about these? These pagan gods. These, they're idols. Okay. How are we supposed to look at this? Go to Deuteronomy. And we see the Bible tells us that there's one true God. Not many gods. Like the mind of man has tried to come up with. In his theistic thinking. That there is a God of gods. In Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. See, when I say things like, you know, about our present, the holidays that are in our country, that are observed in our country, and I say they're pagan in origin, it blows people's mind in the church. Some people want to get up and walk out. I don't, go study it yourself. Don't take it from me. I'm telling you the truth. Don't get mad at me just because I tell you the truth. The only one that I know of that's not pagan in origin that I observe, and that's Thanksgiving. You know? So, I, praise God. Deuteronomy 10, 17. It's not that we're against love. Oh, you don't observe. Valentine's Day, you must be against love. Not against love. Deuteronomy 10, 17. Are you there? For the Lord your God is God of gods. Well, the New Testament says there's only one God. There are no there are no gods, plural. There's only one God. You understand? When he talks about he's the God of God, he's he's speaking to the 
theistic minded men has tried to say that yeah we believe there's a God of gods no he says he is the God of gods amen and the Lord of lords a great God a mighty and a terrible which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward amen he's the God of gods there's only one true God Exodus 20 God's is there. One, two, three. Hallelujah. Well, polytheism, are y'all awake? What does it teach? There are many gods. If you have two gods this morning, you're a polytheist. Did you hear what I said? If you have two gods this morning, if you believe God the Father is separate from God the Son, you are an idolater. If you believe there is a separate person, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost, you have tritheism. Then you have three gods and that makes you a polytheistic. It makes you an idolater. Because the Bible tells me there's only one God, not two and not three. And I preach the absolute oneness of God, not two gods or three gods, because that is idolatry. And Jesus did not believe in tritheism. He did not believe in Trinitarianism. He was a strict monotheistic believer. One God believed. You can't believe in more than one God and not be a polytheistic person. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian or not. If you have more than one God, you're a polytheist. Exodus 20. Amen. Are you there? Verse 3, God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods. All right? Let's look at another scripture here. Go to uh, Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Y'all awake out there? Well, I don't believe that, Pastor. I believe there's... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Well, you got three gods on your hands. If you got three gods on your hands, you're not a one God believer. We believe there's a manifestation of one God. Father in creation, Son in redemption, Holy Ghost in emanation, which means He lives inside of us. Three manifestations of one God. That's correct but not three separate persons in the Godhead because if you have three separate persons in the Godhead you will move into tritheism which teaches three separate gods although there will be many Trinitarians that will tell you they don't believe in three separate gods but if you've got three separate personalities how can you not have three separate persons with three separate personalities and not have three separate gods Amen Deuteronomy 7. Okay, verse 4. You there? I think I'll start with verse 1. I love this passage. Are you with me? All right, ready? Verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, 
Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. Amen. Well, these Canaanites that lived in the land were all involved in polytheism. They worshipped many gods. The Philistines worshipped a god named Dagon, half fish, half man. And God is bringing Israel into a land of polytheists. You understand what I'm telling you this morning? The Philistines, Israel's enemy, worship Dagon, half man, half fish. Do you realize that when the Pope walks around with his little hat on, it's shaped like that, he is declaring that he is a high priest of Dagon. Because that hat is the hat of the fish god. Okay? So he's walking around, you know, and he claims to be the, the head of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. And I shared a little bit about what they believed a couple of weeks ago. He walks around as the high priest of Dagon. That has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Okay? So the Lord is talking to Israel. He says, you're going to go in this land. This land is the Canaanites are worshipers of many gods. You're going to go in this land with all these various uh, peoples, seven nations greater than you. And verse 3 says, and when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt uh, make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. God says when you go into that land, he says you are to destroy the people of that land. Why would he do that? Because of their, their paganism their polytheistic belief of worship of many gods and the worship of those gods had rituals and ceremonies and practices associated with them okay immorality priestesses that were nothing more than harlots and priests of Baal that were nothing more than homosexuals and they would oftentimes get together, men and women, in honor of this false god named Baal, the god of the Canaanites. And they would have intercourse, okay, immoral practices to worship this god of fertility. And goddess of, the goddess of fertility and the god, uh, they believe, that created all things, called Baal. And so they'd get together and they would have children. And these children and these people that had these immoral relationships were Filled with disease, venereal diseases. And so when Israel went in, all of this pagan practice of these polytheistic people in that culture of Canaan, with all of these immoral associations connected to that worship, they were filled with venereal disease. Archaeology has uncovered the bones of these people. And even in the bones of the children, they found venereal diseases. 
And so God says, when you go into that land, he says, you're to destroy them. You know what? That was the mercy of God. People say, that's a mean God. Why would God do that? Why would God tell his people to destroy these human beings like that? Because if he didn't destroy them, venereal disease would have been would have got into Israel and wiped out the nation of Israel. The pagan immoral practices associated with polytheism, horribly immoral. All kinds of diseases. It was the grace of God. And he told them to remove these people. It would have affected the world. All the sickness and disease that was in there. Do you understand that? And this immoral practice that caused these diseases in their body was connected to their worship. So God says, verse 3, you don't even show mercy to them. Verse 2, verse 3, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. He's saying it is absolutely forbidden for a believer to marry an unbeliever. It is forbidden. He says, because if you do that, if you let your daughter take their son, or if you let your son take their daughter, they will turn your heart away from God, the one God of the Bible. Okay? It is forbidden in the Scripture. Not your pastor. I preach God's Word. You want to compromise it with it, I don't compromise with it ever. It is my business who my kids marry. It is my business who your kids marry. It is my business, whether you like it or not. Because I am responsible to God Almighty. And you are responsible to God Almighty as a parent to uphold the truth of this Bible. It is forbidden to you and to me by the Word of God to intermarry with an unbeliever because they will turn your heart from God or turn your children's heart from God. It's not going to be the other way around. It's not the unbeliever coming in and being converted by you. If they're not converted before you get married, they're not going to get converted after you get married. They must be converted before you get married. And praise God if they do. We thank God for that. If they get converted into the truth uh, and become a born-again believer, we thank God for that. Then you're free to marry that person. But if they are not converted before marriage, you are forbidden as a believer to marry them. Because they will turn you away from God, not you to God. Okay? And that is a position and a stand that I do not believe on. Do not budge. And my kids know it. If God's not in it, I'm not in it. Because I can't be, nor can you. Right? Say praise the Lord. So, your kids start having friendships with uh, girls or boys in the world. Just let it be known. There won't be any kind of uh, marriage involved here without their conversion. Daddy's not in it. Mama's not in it. You can't be. So 
So he tells us this very strong word. For they will turn away, verse 4, thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the angel of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy. How are you going to deal with these idols, all these false gods in that Canaan land? First of all, you're going to destroy the people. Now, we're not in Old Testament days. So we're not walking up to all these pagans, idol worshipers who are practicing pagan celebrations and eating pagan food and killing them. We're in New Testament days, all right? But God was protecting a monotheistic people. He was protecting a people who believed in one God, not many gods. And he was protecting that worship of the one God by saying, destroy these people who worship many gods because they will corrupt you. And then he says about these false gods, what are they to do with them? Thou shalt deal with them. Thou shalt destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. So God says, you are to destroy these, these idols. Now, let me say this to you. When he says destroy these idols, he doesn't mean go make a souvenir out of them. You are not to have a souvenir of a false god in your house. I make it my business whether you like it or not. You get that idol out of your house, you burn it, you destroy it. Don't give it, don't sell it in a, in a garage sale. There's a man in the church right now, and I first, he, he moved into our neighborhood, you know, and I was witnessing him and his family, and he had some stuff in his house. And I walked in there, and I just had all kinds of you know, strange feelings. I said, man, we need to destroy this man. It's idol here, you know. We destroy it. Yeah, well, he took it. I don't know. I think a golf club after it. I don't know what all he did. And it almost seemed like that thing, where you couldn't destroy the thing. You beat it to death, and it still did. And it just, but the point being is, you are not to have souvenirs of idols in your house. If you've got a Buddha in your house, you take a hammer to it today. These idols were to be destroyed. Amen. Not set up in your house. You say, but I don't worship it. Yeah, you are to destroy it. It's a false god. Okay. Why? I make it my business. Praise the Lord. You got to be careful too, because a lot of the things that a lot of things that you may be allowing to come into your house may be releasing the spirits of false gods right in your home. When I got got in the church, you know what I did with all my rock and roll music? You know I did with it. I crushed it. I went out in my my tapes. Think of double. Pay good money for them. I didn't just throw them in the trash. I stomped on them. I crushed them and threw them away. 
lot of those, a lot of that music has been played over by Satan's releasing spirits. When you listen to that music, it's releasing demonic spirits into your house. And you wonder why you don't have the victory. You have to get rid of it. You have to be violent. You have to destroy it. You don't invite it into your house. It'll mess you up. Some of y'all believe we're fighting a spiritual battle. And Paul goes on to say, these, these idols, these false gods, they're no gods at all. You know what he says they are? He said, behind them are demons. When these polytheistic believers in the Canaanite religions or those ancient ancient religions, when they worshipped those gods, they weren't worshipping a god, they were worshipping a demon. But one of the demons said, bring me a child and sacrifice your children to me. Bloodthirsty devil. God said, destroy these people and destroy these idols because they would take their children and put them in the arms of the god Moloch who was a molten image set in fire in the valley of Tophet and they beat their drums. Tophet beat the drums to drown out the cries of the innocent as they're burning in the arms of Moloch. Israel started moving into these practices of false worship. That's no wonder God said, destroy these people and destroy these wordless worship because it will corrupt you. Say, well, we don't worship the god Moloch. If you commit abortion so you can keep your job, you worship the god Moloch. Now, listen to me carefully. There's exceptions to certain things I'm about to say. For, like, for example, uh, a single mother that might be in the church this morning that has to work for a living to provide for her family. But there are a lot of mamas. They have their babies and offer them to Moloch to go off to work and leave them in the care of somebody else for the sake of money. That is the worship of Moloch. I'm making my business. You wouldn't say I'm an idol worshiper, but that's exactly what you're doing. If you sacrifice your kids for anything in this world, you are an idol worshiper. No wonder God said what he said about this polytheistic culture. We have to be very careful. I am not as a pastor against technology, but I am against the worship of false gods and pagan practices and things that would try to come into our homes that would make us fall away from the worship of the one true God. You know, I believe the word of the Lord today. So if you got a you got an image of anything in your house, you got rock music with all kinds of strange symbols and emblems on it, you get rid of it. Okay, let's go to Ezekiel seven. In the book of Acts in the nineteenth chapter, they took all their these strange books and things and burned them in fire. When Ephesus had a tremendous revival. Then they took the incantations, what they call the Ephesian letters, and all kinds of strange writings, books, materials, and burned them with fire. Why didn't they just throw them away? 
and deal with it severely. Ezekiel 7.20. Are you all right, all right out there? Okay. Working on you. Make sure your heart's beating. Your heart, okay. Ezekiel 7, he calls these abominations. He titles these polytheistic God abominations. As for the beauty of his ornaments, Ezekiel 7.20, he said, in majesty, that they made the images of the abominations and of the detestable things therein. Therefore have I set it far from me. So God calls these false gods of the polytheistic believers, he calls them abominations. These idols are abominations, okay? which means there's something of God. Say praise the Lord. Now, if we find ourselves, and we don't, but if we find ourselves worshiping idols, then or if we worship more than one God, let me put it this way, if we worship more than one God, then we are idolaters. You understand me? Is that clear in the Bible? Speaks in the, from the Bible to you that if you worship more than one God, you're an idolater because you're a polytheistic believer in many gods. Okay? If you then are a worshiper of more than one God, then you're an idolater, and if you're an idolater, you will experience the severe wrath of God. Is forbidden. Okay, and the scripture to worship anyone but the one true God and Father. All right. So theistic view of man is man's way to try to explain the existence of God. Now, first one was what? Pantheism. God is in everything. Polytheism. The worship of many gods. That's paganism or idol worship. Okay, can be called witchcraft, whatever. Now, there's another view, this theistic view, again, it's a philosophy of man, it's called a dualistic, dualistic view. Say dualistic view. You can, you can hear the word in it, can't you? What does that mean? Dual? Two. Okay. That teaching is a Gnostic teaching. The dualistic view teaches that there are two gods, and these gods are good and evil, okay? right and wrong. God and Satan. So they make Satan a God. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? It is a Gnostic view of God. Two gods. No, God, Satan is not a God. There's only one God. Satan is not his equal. He say, okay, black, white. Right, wrong. Good, bad. God, no. So we say, okay, the opposite of black is what? The opposite of right is what? Wrong. Amen? The opposite of good is bad. The opposite of God is devil? No, you're wrong. He has no opposite. Because if you, if you believe that Satan is the opposite of God, and you make him equal, then you have two gods on your hands. 
God, you got to say, no, that's not the secret. The realistic view, right? Say amen. If you believe in that, then you fail to believe in the God that is good who judges evil. Evil is not the opposite of God. Saying not the opposite of God. God is good and God judges evil. He, that means he's sovereign over all. Amen. But we don't have a realistic view of God. Praise God. The devil's the devil. He's a fallen angel. He's not God. He's not equal to God. He's not the opposite of God. There's only one God. And God is sovereign. And he is good and he judges evil. Getting tired of getting sleepy? I am. I'm starting to get sleepy up here. So if you are, that's fine. Go ahead. Right? Backing up to polytheism. If you believe in many gods, then you miss the one true God. If you believe in a dualistic view, you miss the God who's good, who judges all evil. Okay? That's a Gnostic teaching. And then the next one is deism. A deistic view uh, means that we've shared this with you before. A deistic view of God, again, it's, it's man's own thinking about God. Um, teaches that God created everything and then he stepped away from it. So deism teaches a God that is absent. An absentee God. Isn't that sad? That somebody would believe, yeah, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but after he created it, he, he, he went away from it. He wound it up like a clock and it's been running like a clock ever since and he's not involved in it. The Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. He didn't just create it. He keeps it all together by the word of his power. Every molecule and cells in your body, God keeps it together. Right? He didn't just wind it. After he created, wind it up like a clock and walk away from it, become an absentee God. God is involved in his creation. Thank God for that. If you're not careful as a Christian, you live like you're a deist. Because you, you picture God way up there in heaven somewhere, not involved with you or with life or this world. Don't picture God that way. He's not way up there, you know. Absent from his creation. He's involved in his creation. And that's just a philosophy of man. Alright? So if you believe in absentee God, if you're a deist, then that means that he's no longer an omnipresent God. Everywhere present. He's not, you know, not everything is not God, but he is everywhere present. If you believe he's an absentee God, then you don't believe he's omnipresent, everywhere present, nor do you believe in him. You get it. His omnipotence. Because he's all powerful. Okay? So praise the Lord. Now, the other view, false view of God, is an 
atheistic view of God. Okay, you with me? This still comes from the corrupted mind of man. Atheism, no God. There is no God at all. I'm almost done, all right? Very good. I appreciate your patience. I'm not supposed to take this, so don't worry about it. Atheism, no God. And atheism, the sad part about it is, is that in atheism, people who say there is no God, make themselves God. That's the, that's the sad contradiction about atheism, is that man becomes God. All right? Number one, atheism. But there's different types of atheism. And you might be surprised who are atheists. Because an atheist can be an atheist without denying, you know, boldly, there is no God. I don't believe that there is a God. You can be an atheist and still not be a bold denier of God. How? Practical atheism teaches that there may be a God, but the person lives as if there is no God. Did you hear that? He's not the person walking around with a sign out in the front of the church, there is no God. We, there, you know, It's a person that doesn't have time to worship God, doesn't have time to go to church, that lives their life every day of their life as if there is no God. And you know what they use for an excuse? The so-called hypocrisy of those who claim to believe in there weren't so many hypocrites in the church I would believe that there's a God but because of all the hypocrisy I don't believe there's a God I'm going to live like there's not a God but there might be one but I give myself an excuse not to worship him because I see hypocrisy in other people that's an atheist how many people do you know you walk up and you say are you an atheist no, I'm not atheist. Did you go to church today and worship God? No. Do you live like there is a God? Do you live for Him? No. You're a practical atheist. Oh, I, I don't go to church because all the hypocrites over there. I don't believe in God. There might be a God, but I don't believe in God because all those hypocrites over there. You are a practical atheist. I am giving you a this is a theological definition of a practical atheist. This is theology. This is not something your pastor's making up. This is true. He said, I believe in God. They don't go to church, worship Him, live for Him, love Him, serve Him. Practical atheist. Amen? I don't go to church with all the hypocrites there. Well, why don't you just come join this place? But, there, but, I, but I promise you, there are no hypocrites in this church. No, let me put it this way. That's, that's an incorrect statement. That's an incorrect statement, Brother Jared, that there are no hypocrites in this church. That's incorrect. There are no hypocrites in God's church. There might be hypocrites in this church, but there are no hypocrites in God's church. 
by this that they didn't train those Practical atheism. There may be a God. The person lives as if there is no God. No interest in religion because of the hypocrisy of the professors of that religion. And then you have the dogmatic atheist. And that's the one we think about when we talk about atheism. He openly denies the existence of God. Right? But the dogmatic atheist. Remember dogmas what? Dogmas what man believes about God? Uh, dogmatic atheist denies the existence of God. Opening. Then we have the virtual atheist. Virtual atheist. We're not talking about the games you play. Okay. The virtual atheist, okay, puts, tries to define God. He's got so many terms that define God that you can't climb through the terms to even find God. So, wow, I'm glad I'm not a virtual atheist. Have all these definitions about what you think God is, and you can't get to God because of all the definitions you've defined Him by. Right? So basically, when they when they come down to it, they just say you just can't know there's a God because we have put so many definitions about who God is, you just can't know that there's a God. That's a virtual atheist. You just can't know there's a God. Sort of like agnostic. Agnostic says, there may be a God, but we just can't know if there's a God. Sort of like what a virtual atheist is. And then there's a critical atheist. And the critical atheist says, we can't prove there's a God. We can't prove the existence of God. Well, I've already gone through several things to prove the existence of God. Okay? Then there's a classical atheist. They deny the God of a particular religion. Then there's a rationalistic atheist. That reason is the source of all knowledge. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Psalm 14.1? What does the Bible say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The fool has said in his own heart, there is no God. They may not even just come. That's when we get into this, the first one. Okay, the practical atheist. Because the Bible defines an atheist. It says the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They might not come out and say it with their mouth, but in their heart they say there's no God because they refuse to listen. Practical atheist. Notice what God is saying in His Word. He didn't just say the atheist has said with his mouth there's no God. He said the atheist said in his heart there's no God. So I'll do what I want to do. I'll live the way I want to live. No accountability to God. That is the philosophy of an atheist. And therefore, what an atheist does then is they ignore all the facts and walk around full of arrogance 
arrogant. They're prideful. They're ignoring all the facts. Almost done. The next category that falls under the no God theory is agnostic. An agnostic believes that you can't know if there is a God. You just can't know. Right? What is agnostic? Agnostic means you can't know. They believe you can't know there's a God. Agnostic is somebody who believes they know everything. Right? Okay. So an agnostic is somebody that doesn't know. They say, we just don't know if there's a God in it. Okay? Um, and these agnostic people fall into three categories. Thank God I have come to the end of faith. For your sake. Now, I'm having a good time. I enjoy this. I don't know. It, it, and I, you know what I believe? I'm going to be honest with you. Not because I'm doing it. Not because I'm the one doing it. But I believe God's enjoying this this morning. So if you don't like it, then you don't like what God likes. Because I believe that God likes this. Because when I said, thank God I'm at the end of the page, i got a check in my spirit that I shouldn't have said that. So I believe God likes what I'm doing this morning. So if you don't like it, then you don't like what God likes. Because he likes what I'm doing this morning. In fact, I wouldn't be doing this this morning if it wasn't God's leading. Okay, praise the Lord. Some of y'all like this. All right, positive, uh, positivism falls under the agnostic group. Um, this agnostic teaching of positive and positivism, it doesn't, it's not teaching positive mental thinking. It's a theological term that means uh, that there's nothing true beyond observed facts. And so because you can't examine God, you can't know if he's real. Right? I guess they want to put him in a test tube or something. I guess they want to take him into a lab and examine him, you know what I mean? And because they can't do that, positivism, agnostics, because we can't examine God, then they're we don't know if there is a God. So there's nothing true beyond observed facts. And then we have pragmatism. How many of you ever heard this term pragmatism? Well, pragmatist is somebody that says, okay, that there absolutely is no special revelation of God given to me. Wow. Wow. They've really deceived themselves, haven't they? There's no special revelation of God from you. Look at creation. Look at everything, all the proofs we've already gone through to prove the existence of God. All these things. And then they all work in harmony together. Look at the Bible. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the church. Changed people by the power of God. No special revelation of God from man. And then we have now this is one and as I come to a close the last one I'm going to speak about this is one that you will often hear in college 
settings. A lot of professors in colleges, secular colleges, hold this view. It's called existentialism. Existentialism. Now, you may have never heard the word, but this is what existentialism teaches. That's why it's real dangerous, man, to send, our, send your kids off to college. And I hope, hope pray to God. I'm not saying the college is wrong. I'm just saying they better be mature spiritually before they go. Because those professors and the philosophy that's in that culture, oftentimes with existentialism, it'll mess them up, you know. Okay? Again, I didn't say it was wrong, but it's going to be very mature. Now, what does this teach existentialism? It's an agnostic point of view that the individual can exercise his free will and do what he likes in a purposeless universe. I'll do what I want to do. I'll do what I like. Because there's no purpose in the universe anyway. Continue. No morality philosophy. Because there is in this existentialism the philosophy of no value. Alright? So in existentialism, no God, therefore no need for morality, and I'll do what I want to do because this whole universe is purposeless anyway. I think I'm, I'm going to reach. Check me out on this. Okay? Do your research on it. I think Nietzsche was, was an existentialist. Nietzsche. So anyway, all right? So now you know what it is when you read it. If you wrote this definition down, I promise you, you will be surprised how many times you'll come across this, this word existentialism or come across people that believe it, like Nietzsche. That there is no God, so we don't need morality and the whole universe is purposeless, so let's just live the way we want to live. There's so many people in the world that don't even hold on. They don't even say, I'm an existentialist, but that's the way they live. They don't worry about morality in their life because they don't believe in God. And they do what they want to do with their own life. That's the philosophy. That has come down from these through men of the world. God bless each and every one of you. I appreciate you being here. We have just begun the doctrine of God and we will continue it next Sunday morning, the Lord willing, when we start teaching you about the one true God of the Bible. We we'll talk to you about his attributes, who he is, so on and so forth. I'm excited about that. God bless you. Thank you. You've been so patient. Praise God. You held your eyes open this morning. Hallelujah. And amen to very heavy, heavy theological terms. And, but I enjoyed it. And I pray to God that you did. You were blessed. All right, so let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. This morning, we ask your blessing to be upon the efforts, God, that has been put forth. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless your people, God, that they'll be inspired with this information that they have. And Lord Jesus, let us walk as a true believer, discerning the times in which we live and the ideas and thoughts and philosophies around us. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us in revealing yourself to us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Dismissed.
Amen. Come back tonight and we're going to preach the word of the Lord to you. And I'm excited about the message God's leading me to preach.